Good evening and welcome to the APEC edition of the V Brown Bay podcast. I'm Alistair Cook and as the APEC edition is having a nice little segue into the wonderful world of Hyper-V, we're going to carry on looking at the um, Microsoft certification, the 409 exam uh, around Hyper-V. I'm really pleased that I don't have to teach this because I need to learn this. And I'm joined by um, Pravesh who's going to be covering some, some material for us. Uh, just a quick bit of background info. Uh, you probably see this on a lot of videos. Um, v Brown Bag, you can follow us on Twitter using the at V Brown Bag. If you'd rather consume content in um, Spanish, then we have the Latin American edition and we also have an EMEA edition. And at the moment, the um, US and EMEA edition are covering the Cisco certified um, CCNA qualifications. Um, Brett very happily has, has lined us up, but it's me, Alistair, hosting today, and uh, of course the main content is all coming through um, from Pravesh. So I'm going to hand straight over to Pravesh and let him take over and, uh, and teach us all about the Cyber-V stuff. Oops. Yeah, the wrong go. screen. Thanks, thanks, Alice. Um, just let me hit the first button that became available, and that um, stuffed up a few things. Oops. We have the the typical V Brown bag stutter as we switch presenters. Of course, of course. Uh, can you see my screen now? Yes, we have your initial slider. Cool. Thanks, Alistair. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this overview session of Microsoft Exam 7409, which is called Server Virtualization with Windows Servers Hyper-V and System Center. Bit of a mouthful, isn't it? My name is Pravesh Khanna. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. I'm a technology enthusiast and an active blogger. During my day job, I work as a system center specialist for one of Australia's leading bank on technologies like Microsoft Hyper-V. System Center Configuration Manager, System Center Virtual Machine Manager, and VMware ESXi. You can follow me on my blog at it-ninja.com.au or on Twitter at PraveshK2012. With the introduction out of the way, let's jump straight into today's topic, Microsoft Exam 7409 Overview. My presentation tonight will contain a mixture of slides, demo, and some real examples from my professional experiences. So this particular exam, which targets uh, the Microsoft Hyper-V technology, it is based on Windows Server 2012 R2, and it is targeted towards the IT professionals. Like most of the Microsoft exams, this is a multiple choice, hotspots and scenario-based exam. And the most, most of the skills measured on a very, very high level are configuring Hyper-V, configuring managed virtual machine and high availability, implement a server virtualization infrastructure, and monitor and maintain a server virtualization infrastructure. Now, I will take you for, with a quick overview on Hyper-V, and the reason being that in the exam, you might actually experience questions where they will talk about, this is what you have at the moment, and this is what you're trying to do, what are the, what are the benefits? So it's always pays to know about those kind of technology, not only the current one, but 
at least on a very high level, what used to happen in the previous version of Hyper-V. The Hyper-V is Microsoft Virtualization Platform. Yes, we know that. It's a Type 1 hypervisor. Now, a lot of people ask, what is a Type 1 hypervisor? Now, Type 1 hypervisor is one which actually runs directly on the hardware platform. It does not require another operating system to load before a hypervisor is loaded. A lot of uh, uh, the older versions of uh, Microsoft Virtual Center uh, of uh, virtual servers. That's how it was. It was type two hypervisor. It required Windows to be running on top of before the hypervisor could come up. Hyper-V doesn't require that. It itself sits on top of hardware and then runs um, operating system on top of it. It got released with Windows Server 2008. And the current version, which is running right now in production in, is Windows Server 2012 R2. Windows Server 2016 with lots of improvement with Hyper-V is currently in technical preview, but obviously it's not available to general public yet. And it's not production ready. There is a free version of Hyper-V. It's a non-GUI version. So it, for typical people who know Windows with start menus and all that, none of that is available. It's a typical non-graphic based, text-based operating system, but it's available for free. The, remember that if you are running a Windows Server 2012 R2 with standard edition, you only license to carry two guest OSs, two virtual machines that can run at a given time. You cannot run more than two. So most of the people, what at least what I know of, uh, is Windows Server 2012 R2 with data center edition, which entitles you to run unlimited number of VMs. Here is the history of Hyper-V. Which we start, uh, which we are going to start with Windows Server 2008. When, to the, uh, when Hyper-V got first released in 2008, it was added as a post-RTM update. So when 2008 was released, Hyper-V wasn't there. They released it after shipping it. It was, uh, it was, uh, wouldn't say it would be uh, very much enterprise class ready back then you could only have maximum of four virtual CPUs and only up to 64 gig of virtual RAM per virtual machine. And a given VHD to attach to a virtual machine could only be two terabyte. It used to support a feature called quick migration, which is not very similar to what uh, VMware does with vMotion. Um, it required the VM, if VMs could have been moved between the cluster nodes, but um, for that to happen, the VM actually required to be paused and restarted. Not very enterprise class ready, was it? Uh, it did support snapshots. So it was basically uh, um, a point in time image of the virtual machine and it did support pass-through disks. Now this pass-through disk was uh, basically you have uh, a physical um, LUN which was attached to the virtual machine. And this was to overcome the two terabyte VHD limit for per VM. That's how it was. Rolling forward, we come with Windows 2008 R2. Now this was in many uh, way, it was very much uh, an improvement over the initial release of Windows Server 2008 Hyper-V. It supported live migration, which means instead of waiting few minutes could be up to a minute or two, depending on the size of the, the virtual RAM in 2008. Um, you can actually live migrate a VM from one cluster node to the other within a few milliseconds. 
the clustered chair volumes got introduced. Uh, now, this was a feature of Windows rather than just Hyper-V alone, which means multiple uh, nodes within um, within a cluster could access the same LUN at the same time. And this was a, uh, this was done by mounting uh, a LUN on top of a, a drive letter. So instead of each host looking at their D drive, X, Y, Z, they were looking at D volume one, D volume two, D volume three, and all hosts would have access to that volume one, volume two, volume three mount points. That means they can all access the same disk at the same time. You were able to add uh, SCSI storage on the fly. You did not require the VM to be powered off. Um, Hyper-V supported jumbo frames and virtual machine queues which was like a feature for, which re required a certain type of uh, network card. If they supported it, you could actually enable jumbo frames, which means bigger size chunks could be sent on the, on the network card, which means quicker migrations and you know, better performance for your uh, live migrations and your traffic. NIC teaming, it wasn't supported by Windows, but it was supported if your hardware vendor, your NIC vendor actually supported that, you could have done NIC teaming. Funny enough, before 2002, this wasn't supported. It had SLAT support. Now, SLAT support is uh, basically, it's a feature of your uh, CPU, which actually reduces the hypervisor overhead. So what happens is your CPU actually maintains uh, a table, which actually maps the virtual memory against the physical blocks on the RAM. That's how it worked. And this was a very much a performance improvement on um, when it comes to uh, Hyper-V. Processor compatibility mode was introduced in this particular version. And what that means is if you have a uh, two uh, host with same, similar, kind of, um, similar kind of CPUs, not exactly the same. So one with a Xeon processor, one is with an i7 processor. Before this version, you would not be able to migrate machines across the two nodes. Now you can actually mask those underlying um, features of the CPUs and you can actually migrate things across. Remote FX, another very important feature. Remote FX was basically having your physical servers or your host GPU assigned to virtual machines. So you can have a better performance in terms of video processing. You can actually have high graphic the, the requirements within a virtual machines. No, you can actually do that. You can have dynamic memory for virtual machines. Now, dynamic memory for virtual machines means you can actually assign, instead of assigning a fixed level of uh, VRAM to a virtual machine, you could now um, set up a lower limit, a high limit, and a startup limit. I'll show you quickly what exactly I mean in this case. So, in my lab, which I got here, I have got a few virtual machines running in this environment. And if I go to the, the settings for these ones, if you see, this one is actually using dynamic memory. So what happens in this, uh, in this scenario, I have assigned it two gig worth of startup RAM. This is how it will see it when the machine first starts up. If there is not enough requirement, the, the, after the startup, the, the amount of uh, RAM that is consumed by this virtual machine will drop down to one gig, but can go up to four gig at a memory buffer of 20%. What that means, if there is a requirement by the virtual machine for whatever reason, because of the application demand or by the operating system demand, 
the virtual machine, if requires, can draw more RAM. And the hypervisor would transparently add that virtual, uh, uh, RAM to the virtual machine to actually meet up the demand. If that demand dies down, for example, you were running some processing and that actually memory go, requirement goes up. And now that processing is over, you do not require that much RAM. You can drop to a minimum of one gig. And that would be for a modern operating system that is perfectly okay. Um, older operating system like your Windows 7 backwards, not suggested to do that. But, you know, 2008 R2, 2012 R2, 2012, or a lot of new versions of Linux, it is fine. They can do it. So it's one of the uh, one of the features within Hyper-V which got introduced in 2008. Um, R2. Moving to Windows 2012, this was another big leap over the 2008 R2 features. They increased the number of vCPUs to 64, and you can have a maximum of one terabyte RAM per VM. You can have NUMA nodes now within Hyper-V. Now, what is a NUMA node? In a very, very basic, uh, and, and the way I initially explained it to myself many, many years ago when I first started looking after virtualization was in a physical hardware, uh, the, there are different, uh, so you, you have a hardware with multiple CPUs and multiple RAM blocks. What happens is for the best performance, it's always advisable to actually um, assign the closest memory bank for a given CPU to its virtual machine. This provides the best performance for um, the virtual machines. Now, given that virtualization is all about, you know, making maximum use of physical resources on a given hardware, um, we can always borrow memory off the not so, not the closest memory bank on a hardware. And that's on a very, very basic level. I mean, there are, you can deeply go very deep into this NUMA um, example, but this is on a very, very simplified version of uh, what NUMA nodes are. So this uh, NUMA node was supported in 2012. You can have maximum VHDX size of 64 terabyte, huge compared to what it was initially. You can up, have up to 64 nodes in the Hyper-V cluster. So instead of the previous version that we had, 64 is a huge, huge improvement. You can also perform now storage migration, which VMware calls storage remotion. They had it for years. Now, finally, Windows 2012 started supporting it. We also had something called Hyper-V replica. Now, again, it is there now uh, in 2012. However, it was fixed to five minutes. You can only have a five-minute replication. So what Hyper-V replica was, you have a virtual machine running in your, in your production data center, for example, and you have a replica of that running in your disaster recovery data center, a DR site. And the difference between, the replication difference between the two virtual machines would be fixed at five minutes. So at a given time, if you lose your production virtual machine, you tend to lose your five minutes worth of um, processing or the data sitting inside that virtual machine if there was some transaction that went through. So it wasn't recommended back then to have it for really highly highly critical kind of um, virtual machines where you need every, um, you know, less than a minute worth of, less than five minutes worth of data. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't advisable back then. You could do shared nothing live migration. So you could actually um, have uh, the live migration happening over just, all you need to have is network connectivity across the two hosts. 
they need not to be part of the same cluster they need not to be part of even a domain and you could have just shared um, migrated vm from one to the other smb smb3 got supported in 2012 that was introduced as a part of the operating system smb3 protocol in itself brought a lot of security a lot of features huge improvement in performance and many many more features that got introduced in server 2012 you had the ability to virtualize your fiber channel cards. So in other words, if you have a virtual machine um, or many virtual machines and you have a physical fiber channel card on the machine, now you can actually assign them um, virtually over to the virtual machine instead of just relying on um, your, um, um, your VHD files. So that was another big improvement in 2012. Moving to the current version of Hyper-V, this was a great, great improvement in the history of Hyper-V. In many, many sense, this actually brought a real enterprise class performance and, um, and, uh, and features to Hyper-V uh, coming up from 2012 R2. We had something called shared VHDX files. Now what that means, let me demonstrate it to you quickly. A shared VHDX file is basically your uh, you can have guest clustering based on a shared VHDX file. Now for a shared VHDX file to be, um, to be supported, you need to have, um, if I go back to my slides again, which is there, you can, uh, which is a shared VHDX file, you need to have a clustered shared volume or an SMB share. You cannot do it on a local disk. That is one of the requirements. So in my environment, I do not have a, um, a LUN or a, a CSV as such, but if I try to add a new hard drive to this and I try to create something with dynamically expanding disk and it's sitting on my D drive, nothing special. I'll just name it uh, demo. I'll give it a, a size. 40 gig, fair enough, I can add it, no issues. However, if I go to the advanced features, I have an option to go enable virtual hard disk sharing. What this allows you to have is one or more, or two or more virtual machines sharing the same hard disk at the same time, um, kind of mimicking what you have in a real clustered environment with, um, with uh, iSCSI or fiber channel LUNs similar kind of feature, but for that to happen, if I try to do it here, it will bomb out. You know, can anyone tell me why? As I said before, the storage where the virtual machine hard disk is located, it does not support virtual hard disk sharing. So yeah, I'm just running it on my D drive, which is a local attached disk. It is not supported. Had I done this thing on a, a, a iSCSI or a fiber channel one, this would have worked like a piece of cake. <gasps> Okay, the other uh, big feature that we had was compressed live migration traffic. So what happens if you perform the live migration before it, uh, it was all going, if it was a 40 gig uh, file that you're transferring over the, over the wire, it will go as a 40 gig. Whereas now with 2012 R2, you, can, you have the option to compress that live migration traffic and that will actually perform the migration a lot quicker. So if I go and check the um, the Hyper-V settings on my machine. 
you can have enable incoming and one of the advanced feature is you can have compression which is on by default on this particular IPv. you can change between TCP IP so uncompressed or compressed or just go via SMB so using um, RDMA so that is one of the features that got introduced in 2012 R2 you can have the generation 2 virtual machines which supported the new UEFI um, BIOS instead of the traditional BIOS that we used to have. We had 2012 R2 brought the storage quality of service so you can actually now limit how much uh, storage IOPS a virtual machine can have. That way you can actually if there is a noisy VM causing disruption to your storage because it's trying to consume too much you can actually limit it. You can have automatic VM activation. Now this is a very very good feature. What essentially this means if you have Windows VMs, you don't really require KMS or anything like that to get those VMs activated from Microsoft because now you can, as long as your host is activated, it will automatically activate the guest operating system. The other big improvement is Hyper-V replica. Now remember in the in 2012, uh, 2012, the original version of 2012, we only were fixed to five minutes of replication interval. With 2012 R2, we can go, we, we have two or three different versions of replica. One is your um, fifth, five minutes, obviously, which was already there. You can go all the way up to 15 minutes or you can bring it down to 30 seconds. So now you can, you have less chances of losing data or uh, less data at risk if the replication fails or the, if you lose the VM, you only have 30 seconds to worry about it. And the other important thing is they added a, a tertiary replica site. So instead of having just two replicas, now you can have a third replica site. And the other important thing is the snapshots, they got renamed to be checkpoints. So what we used to have as snapshots, they now called checkpoints as 2012 R2, which is the current version. Now if you remember, initially I quickly brushed through this idea of generation two virtual machines. Well, that borders a question. There must be a generation one virtual machine. Now, people ask me, what is a generation one virtual machine? Now, these are the older type virtual machines that were supported um, on 2012 Hyper-V or before. So 2008, 2008 R2 or 2012. Those were called generation one. They used to have the earlier BIOS-based architecture and the, the guest operating system that got supported here were Windows 7, XP, 2000, um, Linux, a lot of older versions of Linux. The server operating system were 2008 R2, 2008, Windows 2003, Windows 2000, but the host operating system you require was 2012 or below. Let me just quickly show you what a generation one virtual machine looks like and what are the main differences just in a live form. This is my generation one demo PC one, which is running Windows seven. Very typical operating system. But if you look at the device manager on this particular one, you see here, there's a lot of older kind of hardware, floppy disks, IDE disks, PS2 mice. Who needs that these days with Windows 10 and Windows 2012 and things like that on, on the, you know, nowadays, why would we need this kind of old, um, hardware. So what we have here is, let, let me quickly sign into my 
um, newer operating system, which is 2012. It's a generation two virtual machine. And if I go to the device manager here, and when, when it loads, have a look. It's much, much more cleaner. It doesn't have all those older kind of PS2 things and doesn't have the older kind of storage controllers. It is a lot cleaner compared to what we had in the other, uh, which is demo PC1. So comparing two side by side, Look how clean this looks. So on the left, we have a generation one virtual machine. On the right, we have a generation two virtual machine. And those are the main differences. Again, you require older kind of operating system for generation one. A generation two virtual machine, again, like I said, it requires Windows 8.1 or Server 2012 R2 and above. It supports a newer kind of EFI-based architecture. It supports secure boot. So now you can actually can encrypt your hard drive so it actually prevents it from, you know, malicious people getting into it and trying to break into your virtual machines just by getting the VHDX files. The synthetic drivers that boot, the VM bus, the boot from SCSI virtual hard disk. So instead of using an IDE disk, which was a requirement from the generation one uh, virtual machines on the left, as you can see, IDE disk. Now we have all SCSI stuff. Um, there is no emulated or legacy devices and they boot 20% faster. This is all the stats from Microsoft. Um, on, on an average, this boost, uh, they boot about 20% faster, and the guest operating system installation is about reduced by 50%, so much, much better performance when it comes to generation one and generation two virtual machine, the difference between the two. Other topic that I touched before was dynamic virtual machine, which I was just demoed, actually I did before, ahead of time. Sorry about that, but um, here is what I was talking about before. The dynamic memory allocation controls the amount of physical memory that is allocated to the virtual machine. It lets you define the initial, minimum, and maximum memory amount. The hypervisor adds and removes the memory as needed. So you don't need to worry about it yourself. It's all done behind the scene for you. It, also, it only works with Windows and Linux operating system that supports the ability to hot add RAM. So that is a very, very important point. Do not try this with the older kind of operating system. So your Windows 2000, Windows XP, Windows 7, uh, not really, not really supported. Um, but the newer operating systems, your Windows 2012 R2 and the newer versions of Linux, feel free, go for it. It cannot hot remove the RAM, it can hot add the, so if you want to drop down, so initially you start, you assigned uh, a four gig RAM at maximum and now you want to drop it down, well, not really, you can't do that. And VM must be removed, remove, uh, VM must be rebooted if you want to re reduce the amount of memory given to it. The other important thing with, which is, uh, which the Windows 2012 um, brought with it was the support for VHDX files. Now VHDX files are basically your virtual hard disk file formats. Um, the original ones used to be called VHD files. Uh, that was uh, that was that was what got introduced with Windows Server 2008 and 2008 R2. The limitation for these ones was it only supported up to two terabyte size, and only had older kind of operating systems 2008, 2000 R2, 
8R2 and Windows 7 and all the other uh, the versions of operating system before that. It can be converted to VHDX file, but uh, and there are a lot of free um, tools available. One of the biggest advantage of VHDX files compared to the legacy format is the the storage capacity. Before Server 2012, the Hyper-V virtual hard disk had a two terabyte limit. Now VHDX files have a limit of 64 terabyte. So it's massive, massive improvement. And they're only not only limited to just uh, the capacity, they were designed to work with the modern operating system and hardware and have four kilobyte logical sector size that improves the performance compared to VHD files. They also provide protections against the file corruptions related to power failure. So if your virtual machine or your host suddenly dies, actually um, the, uh, the there is a continuous keeping track of the updates in the metadata for these VHDX files, and that prevents that accidental loss of data. Um, the one other point that I want to mention is if you are going to convert your VHD files to VHDX, make sure you are running it on uh, Windows Server 2 2012 or above. So 2012 or 2012 R2. It cannot be done on 2008 or 2008 R2. Very important point. Another something, uh, again, something that I demoed before, shared VHDX files. It allows for guest clustering and requires the VHDX hard disk file format. It requires the underlying storage to be SMB, SAN, and iSCSI. And it requires Windows 2012 R2 hypervisor. It cannot be done anything before that. So if I had, in this place, if I had um, a 2012 server or 2008 R2 server, not supported, it can't be done. So that is a very important point. Another very important topic when we're touching these disks is differencing disks. What is a differencing disk? Well, imagine in, in, you know, in a scenario where you have a, a large deployment of VDIs. Now, uh, more in many scenarios, these are non-persistent. So people in a help desk environment log on to their um, VDI, a virtual desktop environment. They don't, as long as they get a standard environment, they don't have to save any data onto your C drive or the user do not, the, the admins do not require them to have that. What essentially they can have is a master disk uh, and all the changes to that, uh, changes, uh, and that, that is the one that, get, uh, um, that gets allocated to all the VDIs. If user requires them to be, uh, any information to be changed on those PCs, that get written to a second disk. So your base operating system image always remains the same unless you update it. But all the user information or any changes written to that disk are not written to the master disk. They are written to a differencing disk. They have two different, um, the, the two terminologies that we use with regards to these differencing disks is parent disk and child disks. So what if you have a single disk which, is, which contains all your operating system and your uh, key uh, configuration with regards to that and any changes to that get written to the child disk. Um, and the, the differencing disk can, data, data can, can keep writing to it as long as there's enough space on the physical um, disk underlying. So under your LUN, as long as there's space on your LUN, you can actually keep writing to the child disk. Or you have a limit reached to the size of your child disk. They can expand dynamically as the data is written to it. They, 
there's no, you don't need to manage that part of it. And crow can grow as large as the maximum size allocated for the parent disk. So if you have a parent disk assigned to 60 gig, you can, and your provided you have sufficient storage available on your underlying storage on your LUNs or your iSCSI um, LUNs uh, or your fiber channel LUNs, you, your differencing child disk can go up to 60 gig in this scenario. So very important thing to remember. Another important point that I checked uh, that I touched before was checkpoints. Got introduced with the initial release of Windows 2008 Hyper-V, but they got uh, they were renamed to uh, they were called snapshots in Windows 2012 and before got renamed to checkpoint in 2012 R2. What it does is actually creates a point in time capture of RAM, CPU, system state, and disk contents. It does degrade the performance while checkpoint is written. So that's another important point. If you are performing a checkpoint on a given VM, obviously because you're writing data to the disk and actually um, at the same time, the the virtual the hypervisor is trying to maintain um, the current operation of the virtual machine as well as trying to keep a snapshot of it, there is a bit of performance degradation. The way it is done is there is a file called a VHD file is created for every VHDX file and every uh, and the VHDX files become read only for the time. So all the data is being written to that a VHD file. How do you perform um, a, a checkpoint? The two ways, and this is again a very um, important way of for this particular exam, PowerShell. Make sure you know both ways of using Hyper-V. Of course, you need to know the the GUI version of everything. So in this example, if you want to checkpoint at this given machine, I can just right click or navigate on the menu on the side and just hit the checkpoint either way. This will create a point shot in time for this particular version machine. Now I can go and muck around, I can patch with it, I can deploy a uh, an application if I want to, if I don't trust it too much, that what would this particular application do or the configuration change I'm about to perform. I can always do this and I can manage it from here. Um, I can always uh, delete these checkpoints. I can always manage it either using the GUI or always can do it from the checkpoint name. So uh, using the um, using the PowerShell module. So in this example, for, um, I have this virtual machine, which I call as WinServer001, which I have just created the checkpoint for. I can manage the same thing with PowerShell. And if I go and run this particular command, boom, oh, doesn't work. Why is that? Any, any guesses? Well, the simple reason is I haven't imported the PowerShell module and I havenven't got it installed on this one. And it's uh, oversight on my part, so apologies for that, but a simple reason being I haven't installed the PowerShell module for this particular, um, for Hyper-V on this particular machine, and I haven't imported it within PowerShell. But very important one to remember that you can manage checkpoints and most of the things within Hyper-V using PowerShell. This is a very, um, very important topic when it comes to your exam. Um, a checkpoint can be exported using the export VM snapshot commandlet within PowerShell. 
and the resulting VHDX files can be used to create a clone of the original VM. So that's that's there is no direct support of cloning of virtual machines within Hyper-V as you as opposed to what you have within an ESXi environment, but this is the way of doing that within Hyper-V. Another important, important topic that I want to touch here are Hyper-V virtual switches. Now, Hyper-V virtual switches are the way for virtual machine to connect to the real world. In my lab environment, I can access that using the Hyper-V switch manager, virtual switch manager. I have created three different switches here. If you notice, they're called vSwitch external, vSwitch internal, vSwitch private. What are these three? Why did I create these three different ones? Let's start with external. Easiest one to, to understand. This is the external um, type of virtual, uh, virtual switch, which must be connected to do a physical adapter on your host. It allows communication between your physical network and the management operating system and the virtual machines. So all three of them, your machines outside on the other network, as well as your operating guest operating system and your host operating system can all talk on this. But if they are connected to this, um, virtual, if, uh, if any virtual machine is connected to this particular virtual switch. You can use the same private IP address range for adapter as an external virtual switch that you're using on the physical network it is attached to. So if you're in your, re in your external network, if you're using 10.x.x.x network, you can do the same here. No reason no, that you can't do it. Uh, moving on to the next type, which is virtual switch internal here. It's called an internal switch type of virtual switch. It is a similar one to the private switch which I will come to a bit later on, it allows the virtual machine to only talk to the host operating system. You cannot talk to anything else. So any virtual machines connected to the internal type of switch can only talk to other virtual machines connected to the switch, the same switch, as well as um, the host operating system. That's it. They cannot talk to anything else. If you are, have a virtual machine which is connected to a private type of virtual switch, they can only talk to other virtual machines connected to this private network. So if you are setting up a private lab kind of environment, which have to be very isolated, not connected to anything else, this is your way to do it. It's not connected to anything or depending on your re real requirement, you can go either private or internal network. In those kind of, if you want to have it connected to your external network or, as well, then you need to go to your external type of switch. And what the other thing to remember here, if you have a network adapter, which in this case, I'll show you the two type of network adapters I have available here. And this is a very important part from, uh, and this, from my professional experience out in the industry. I had two types of, um, network adapters attached to it, a host management and a Hyper-V. So one is dedicated for all my um, host management, all my remote desktop connections, my file copy, things like that. And a Hyper-V which is dedicated to all the virtual machine traffic. Now, if you notice in the drop down, I can only see 
Realtek PCI GBE Family Controller 2 and Controller 1. Where is this host management Hyper-V? Well, it goes by the device name, not by the friendly name which I have put on the left-hand side, if you can see. And that's a very important thing. And the, the most crucial thing which I'm about to share now, the, um, the, the network adapter that you have bound to this particular virtual switch actually does not become available to the host operating system unless you check this box. The host management, host operating system cannot use this, um, this Ethernet adapter unless this box is checked. So in this case, even though it is visible here, if I go and perform a um, an IP config, oops, the IP addresses associated to this particular um, Hyper-V adapter would not be available. Again, very important point. So coming back to the, the slides again, those are your three types of um, virtual switches that are supported in Hyper-V environment. This brings me to the next topic with regards to the particular exam. A lot of people come to me and ask, what should we do and, and how should we prepare for and how should we get familiar with Hyper-V? I know it's, 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 uh, we, we all know about ESXi, but Hyper-V, how do we play around? Number one tip is build yourself a practice lab. Very important. Do it on your home, do it at your work, wherever you have flexibility to do so. You do not need a, a big hardware requirement for it. Myself, if I go back to my lab and show it to you, doesn't have high specs. So if I go and check things, it only is running with 12 gig of RAM and a four core CPU, not where, and two ethernet cards. These days, uh, the, this is very much at power of what you can have. Not much requirement when it comes to those kind of things. You can download a, an eval, I think it's a 60 or 120 days eval of Windows Server 2012 from the below URL. Highly, highly recommended. Go through this um, 2012 R2 Hyper-V features. This is the URL that I have pointed you towards. Um, another one that I can share you with is this early expert study group, which was created back a uh, few years ago, but it still is a lot valid when it comes to this particular exam. They take you through a lot of scenarios and, uh, you know, hands-on labs, um, got a, uh, lots of links on how do you do this, how do you do that within Hyper-V. So kind of a lot of real-world examples from the experts within Microsoft community. Um, the other stuff is uh, you, TechNet. TechNet is very big resource when it comes to anything to do with Microsoft and uh, not to mention virtualization in itself. This is the particular link that I personally used to actually go through and know more about every aspects within Hyper-V 2012 R2 and can highly, highly recommend that to everyone out there in the community. Another one that you want to try is actually get yourself more familiar with the actual exam. There is a Pearson MindHub, MindHub um, official exam from Microsoft. It is available on uh, for anyone to purchase. It's not that expensive, but it's worth uh, investing. I think it's about uh, 30 or $60 from my memory. Um, it has 
the best the best part for about this particular uh, practice exam is it has detailed answers and references to if you have selected a particular question and you have answered it in a certain way if your answer is wrong why is it wrong and it's the real answers not someone's guesses so very important guys um, i know a lot of people go through these um, uh, these unauthorized um, study material and the answers on all of them uh, like the, the the reasoning for given for a particular answer it's all over the place do not believe them trust me take the word from me always rely on the certified stuff always rely on the microsoft official uh, stuff you know it's coming from the real experts please take that advice it'll you'll make your life a lot easier that way uh, it will provide you, uh, you know, an, in, an instant score report. So it will also tell you where, which part of the particular technology you are weak in or you need more work on and which of, which of them are your strong points. So you know where exactly to focus your efforts to. Obviously, Microsoft Virtual Academy, a huge, huge library of videos and, um, and Microsoft presentations across various forums. Highly, highly, highly recommended go through it if you haven't signed up just look for mva.microsoft.com um, and make yourself familiar just do a quick search on hyper-v all you need to do is that and it will give you hundreds and hundreds of videos from all levels of hyper-v um, topics from very minimal to very advanced level they're all sorted by you know level one level two level three and based on your own familiarity with the actual topic you can go through them and another very very important point the MVP community. People like Aiden Finn and Thomas Muir out there. I personally, you know, follow them. Um, great, great guys. They, I have uh, put their uh, blogs on here. Go and search for them. I'll click and provided it opens based on my intent connection. Oh, and there we go. Finally opens up. AidenFinn.com. Great guy. He's like, you know, a gun when it comes to Hyper-V. Highly recommended, man. Go for it. Uh, read through his blogs. He goes through a lot of um, examples, lo lots of hands-on examples, and within um, within his blog, highly, highly recommended. And same for Thomas Mira. Both of them very, um, very highly recommended. So that brings us to the end of my presentation. Excellent. And if I unmute, I can thank you for that. No, I guess Alan's at your end. All right. That was all good. I'll just hit the stop recording button.